the second part of our series. We did Creed, seven sermons on the timeless doctrines, and now we are doing the second part of this uh, series, which is controversy, which are the most timely uh, just issues of our day. And we are beginning with the environment. And so let me introduce it this way. I wonder if I should pray first. Um, no, nah, actually, no, 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 no. Actually, let me, let me introduce it first this way. Okay. Um, uh, so Alex and I, we just, we, as, as he mentioned, we drove uh, the India team uh, to the airport. And then afterwards, we had about, I don't know, a few hours uh, at the airport over coffee just to talk and to get to know each other more and just to really just to talk deeply. And um, I haven't cleared this with him, by the way. Is he, is he here still? He's teaching? Okay, all right, so Alex, you'll, you, if you get this on recording, because uh, usually I'm really careful about not sharing anything that has been shared in confidence, and this has been shared in confidence, but uh, I, I'm going to share it with you all because I think he would be okay with it. In a moment of extreme vulnerability, Alex confessed to me a shameful secret. For four years of his life, he has lived in New Jersey. <laughs> what? Actually, I, I didn't know that, actually. And so I said, I said, I never knew that. And he said, uh, yeah, he goes, I, he goes, I'm not proud of it. And he goes, actually, I don't know why you defend it. And so, well, actually, I thought that what we should do, confession is important. Vulnerability, openness is important for any community body. So I just think that we ought to do this as a cleansing, unifying act. If you have lived or presently do live for any period of significant time has had an address in New Jersey, would you please just go ahead, raise your hand up high and admit that. Alright, is, is that is that true? <laughs> See, many many of us actually, but and the thing is, honestly, I never knew why it was something to be ashamed of uh, to live and grow up in New Jersey. Though I was, when I went to the University of Chicago as a college student, I left the East Coast and went to the Midwest. When I arrived, and they said, "Where are you from?" Honest, they I said, "I am from the New York area." <laughs> and I just didn't know why I was supposed to be ashamed of New Jersey, but I was. And I always heard like armpit of United States, New Jersey, and all that. And it was finally, I, I was old in my, I was in my, well into my 20s as I was driving on the New Jersey turnpike that I finally understood why we are considered what we are. I mean, you see factories on either side with smokestacks actually belching fire into the sky, toxic waste and probably some nuclear materials that are still lodging around. And so that is, that is, that, honestly, that narrow strip in the New Jersey Turnpike, that's the only place in New Jersey that's like that. The rest of that is God's country. It is, after all, the Garden State. You are looking at me as completely incredulous. I, the New Jersey I grew up in, a little bit of the south part of New Jersey, it was a wonderful place to grow up in. And uh, to the, my fondest recollections, in high school, I would periodically show up to my best, one of my best friends, or four or five us buddies that hung out together. I would periodically show up there, regularly show up there, at Mr. Mrs. Kirkpatrick, Mrs. Kirkpatrick's house, and I was decked out in black. About 7 o'clock, I was decked out in black. And this is not because we were about to go into the dance party, though it was the 80s. It was because we were going to go out to the woods and hunt each other down. That's the most exciting thing. It is a rush. Yeah, I mean, you know they're not going to actually kill you, but you're hiding behind some tree and your heart's pounding out of your chest because somebody is going to jump on you. This is old school be- before paintball or anything like that. Well, we just had sticks and we were out there hunting each other as kids. We, we grew up, the, his woods we played in, we played in my woods in the back of my, the forest in behind my house. 
And the great thing is that is that we were we we love the, the just all fantasy and Lord of the Rings and all that. And one time we to our great dismay, when we went back in the in those woods, there was a housing development that was being built. There was construction. And we could not believe these invaders into our forest, our shire. And so we went up, seriously, no, no joke, this is in uh, someplace junior high, early high school. We went up into the embankment, and when they, the construction workers got into their cars, this is actually illegal, I'm not saying this to do, and luckily we don't have any of the kids, but we, there was all these beer bottles and, uh, that were strewn all over there. We threw them onto the, the like they were safe in their cars, we weren't going to hurt anybody, but we threw them onto the pavement, and we drove them away. They finally drove out of there, and we were just really excited because we had chased off the intruders into our forest. Those were young days, and as many technologists and culture watchers have been raising a weather bell, they've been raising an alarm that increasingly, because of technology, children are no longer playing in forests and brooks and streets. They are losing a vital connection with nature. Because now everything, it is amazing. And, you know, I think I talked about this from the latest CES. But this is the year, 2010, where 3D TV is going to be made available, uh, led by Sony and Panasonic. Eventually, in the next 5, 10 years, there will be 3D sets in a lot of houses, I think. And it will be HD 3D, and it will be so real that it will really be the surround, virtual surround sound, surround encompassing immersive experience. And it will be at such a high resolution that some people have just been concerned that in a, a hundred years from now, should Jesus tarry, that we, it will be something like this, the nightmare scenario. We will all be in our little safely uh, ensconced in this little safe place where we have these incredible virtual reality experiences of the snows of Kilimanjaro or with certain kind of species that have all become extinct. And outside, the world would have been ravaged by global commercialism and whatever environmental effects, and so that we will have to live out our connection with creation in a virtual way. And the reason why that I'm beginning now with the environment is because it is we want to see what God says on each of these major topics. And the reason why that's so important for us, so important for us, is because I cannot talk like this, and I cannot speak like this, without instantly being branded as some liberal... Uh, you know, hyper-Democrat, Al Gore, uh, you know, supporting, you know, Mother Gaia, tree-hugging hippie. That's just the incident. It's become so polarized now so that the war on terror has been appropriated by the Republican Party so that they use that as a fear power base so that if you want to be kept safe, you must vote Republican. And Democrats have taken the environmental issue. If you, want to, if you don't want the world to be destroyed for our children, you've got to, we are the only ones that can help you with that. It's become so polarized. They've taken these issues which actually affect the welfare and safety of every human being on the planet. And they've made it their own personal party platform. And so we must say, what does God have to say about environmental issues? Or is it just purely a political sociological phenomenon, an ecological, environmental, economic phenomenon? Or does God have something to say about the world he created? And we believe he did. We believe he does. God is intimately concerned with the environment. We need to have his eyes, his view. And so we want to look look this look into Psalm 104. And before I go into prayer, and I'm going to move through these points as quickly as I can, I've outlined them for you in your bulletin. That's the structure of this message. 
Psalm 104 is God's corrective against these four distortions. And if you don't know what any of those are, don't worry about it because I'll define them for you quickly. But we're going to talk about Psalm 104, or God's perspective versus deism. Psalm 104 versus Gnosticism. Psalm 104 versus fundamentalism. And we'll end with Psalm 104 versus commercialism. And we'll squeeze all that into the next 30 minutes. I'm taking off my watch right now so I can see it out of the corner of my eye. But I'm going to close my eyes first. Would you pray with me as we come before the Lord? The earth is the Lord's and all therein. The world is God's and everyone in it. And we have such an incredible hard time with that. We look at the world as if it was ours and it belonged to us, as if we owned this place. We look at every home, every car, every stitch of clothing, bit of food, and we are tempted to think, Father, mine. I work for it, I paid for it, I deserve it. And this incredible entitlement ethic that has pervaded us all, infected us all, we would find a biblical correction to. We would find a different lens in which to see more clearly the world in all of its sparkling beauty and shining glory as belonging to, as reflecting the glory of God and whose image we ourselves have been created in. We want to be radically focused upon you and have you as our vision. Would you use these words in scripture to correct us as new lenses? And what we're really saying, Father, is give us new hearts and new eyes and new minds. We pray these things, God, in Jesus' name. Let me take the first one, uh, Psalm 104, versus deism. Deism, if you don't know it, most of the founding fathers of our country, Jefferson, uh, Washington, those, uh, those uh, older guys, they were actually not Christians in our evangelical sense of the word. When they talked about God, the God they believed in mostly was a form of religious belief called deism. And deism is the belief that God does exist, but that there is no meaningful connection between the God that they did believe exists and the creation which he created. So the major way to understand deism is as God as clockworker. God creates the world as his clock, he winds it up, and then he lets it go, and he has no more contact with the world. That is not the vision of God that we get in Psalm 104. Psalm 104, let me just, this, I wish we could actually read the entire psalm. It stands together. But let me pick it up from verse 27 and read with you in your hearts as I read out loud, verses 27 through 30. These all look to you, and by these all he means the, all creatures great and small. Every single creature on the face of the planet, from little insects and microbes even, I think, all the way to the great big huge killer whales and, and great big uh, elephants and every single manner of animal. These all look to you. These all look to you. It's amazing. Every single creature on the face of the planet is oriented toward God by divine creation. Every being looks to God. All look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Consider that every single animal, plant, and bird, and creaking creature, crawly creature, is eating from the hand of God as he opens his hand. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. That last part I would read for you one more time. When you send your spirit, they are created. In the previous verses, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. This is an important extension on Genesis. 
The reason why Genesis tells us that God created the world. Psalm 104, along with many verses, are parts of the Bible that tells us that God not only created the world, God sustains the world. It is not that just God created all these things and let them run as perpetual motion and principles of physics that are happening all on their own without God's meaningful intervention. God created the world and moment by moment, if God did not sustain the breath of every living thing on the planet, did not cause the sun to shine every single day and then bring it to rest, if God did not allow rain to fall and an entire uh, photosynthesis cycle to happen, if God did not divinely superintend and sustain that, the entire world would collapse the universe in an instant. Every moment we are intricately connected with God. Adam, as the world fell from God's fingertips, knew that. But thousands, millions, however that works out, later we are still as intimately connected as if God created the world yesterday. I breathe and I'm connected to God because God created that breath. That breath right now at this moment for me so I can live this next five seconds. It's not just that God created the world like millions of years ago and just let it go. God sustains the world, not only creates it. God not only creates the world, not only created the world, sustains the world, but let me read the frame of the passage I just read. And let me read just these two verses on either side. Psalm 104, 24 says, How many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom? You made them all. And ends in verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. God not only created the world, not only sustains the world, God rejoices in it. You ever make something, and as you're making this thing, something that's important to you, something that you're pouring your heart into, other people are going to see it, and as you're making this thing, periodically, I mean, first it may just be just clay or wood or, or knitting or just string, but as this thing is slowly taking shape, you periodically take a step back, and you think, there it is, it's good. Five times in the Genesis account, in Genesis 1, God takes a step back from his creation and says, it is good. God loves and rejoices in his creation that he has made. He creates it. He sustains it. He rejoices in it. He allows his glory to shine out from it. I'm going to read to you the early part of this psalm because for me, I think it's absolutely astounding. Oh Lord, my God, this is the way that it starts. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Verse 1, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Listen to these words now. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beam. He's talking about like a wood beam of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes it. Now I'm going to stop here. I'm going to break in. Because we've been talking a lot about apocalyptic literature and metaphor. And if we're going to think in terms of reality, we've got to look at this text. And the reason why I broke in is because we would read this and we're tempted to say, really? God clothes himself with, with light. How in the world does that happen? I mean, is God actually taking light and wrapping it around his body, which he doesn't have? That's not, it, it that doesn't happen. How, how is God stretching out the heavens? How does, is the heaven something you can stretch? 
lays the beam of his upper chambers on the water, so the dwelling place of God is, is there and kind of enthroned up there on top of the waters that fall in the sky and, like, and suspended by this kind of beam, like a wood beam. Where, where, where is that located in actual real physical world reality? If you're getting confused, I, I mean actually to, to mind that confusion. He makes the clouds his chariot. And again, really, are the clouds, does God actually hop on clouds and ride them like a chariot? Does he really send wind around like a messenger? Does that actually really happen? And the answer to that question is no, it doesn't. God has no physical body. Or I'm going to pick this up just so that, um, I'm not going to take that as divine sanction to just preach as long as I want. God has no physical body that he should actually grab light around him as a garment. Do you say It is impossible for God to actually get into a chariot and ride it. God is omniscient, omnipresent. He's infinite. God cannot do any of these things. It says here that closes out that, that the earth that he took the earth and laid its found and laid its foundation firm. That it, he took the earth and laid it upon a firm foundation. We've been out there into outer space. There is nothing underneath the earth. These are all metaphor. These are all metaphor. It's like he put a garment around it. Like light is wrapped like a garment. It's a metaphor or a simile. Now I'm trying to get to a simile. He rides, it's like he takes the clouds and rides them like a chariot. It's like he takes wind and sends them as messengers. It's not actual a reality. It's a, a metaphor. It's, it's an image. It doesn't really happen. But the question emerges when it happens so frequently all over the Psalms and all over the Bible. Why does God insist on all these metaphors, these, these physical, tangible metaphors? God is invisible, omnipresent, omniscient, infinite. And why does he constantly, this infinite being, constantly talk about his hands? He doesn't have hands. Why does this infinite being constantly, when he created everything, says that God spoke it into existence? God said, let there be light. What language did he use? Did he speak Hebrew? What, what, what was that language? What did that voice sound like? There were no words. God has no mouth. But he insists on saying that he spoke the world into existence. It is more real than these realities. And what I mean by that is that there is a tangibleness which God means to have and means to imply for himself. The reason why that God talks about his hands and his voice and his riding on clouds and his sending wind like messengers, his taking light like a garment and wrapping around him is because God himself also means to inhabit and enjoy and be immersed in the creation which he has created. I'm not sure if that, that comes through, if you understand what it is I'm saying. Did you ever especially when you were kids, you cannot lose this, and if you've lost it, you must regain it. Did you ever want to just go out there and just dance in sunlight, just have that light just clothe you? Do you ever feel bathed in sunlight? And you're not really being bathed, but you know what I mean? You're being bathed in sunlight. Do you ever just kind of like just look at wind and the wind is rushing around you? And there's this connection with creation that makes you feel so whole and so right. God, in speaking like this, is saying, I am not apart from creation. 
I'm not just in this invisible, intangible being that is this ethereal nothingness that just kind of floats above the earth. The earth is a good creation, and I mean to touch it, even though I have no hands. I mean to speak into it, even though I have no voice. I mean to wrap light around me like a garment, even though I have no body. God is intimately and intricately invested in every part of creation. That's the meaning of this psalm. It's not this God just made the world and it just runs on principles of physics that we study with astronomy and biology and, and physics. God has made this a personal world in which he himself inhabits. He, he himself also communes with, touches with. He creates it, he sustains it, he rejoices in it. And we don't have time to go there, but if we did, one of these days, take a look at Genesis 9, after the flood. There is a covenant that God makes with creation. We don't have to, again, we, I wish we had time to look at it. We don't. We talk about this covenant relationship that we are in with God in Christ Jesus. We are in this covenant relationship. Do, 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 do you, you know what I'm talking about? I, I, I say, I use that word quite a bit. That there is this kind of this relational bond that we have between God and ourselves, which is unbreakable, this covenant relationship. Genesis 9, God says after the flood, after Noah, that God has made a covenant with every living thing and creature and the entire world. God is in a covenant relationship with this planet. So God is not the God of the deist gods. And when we look at the world, and if you, if you watch someone like those planet Earth specials, if you ever get a chance to go to like Mount Palomar or, or, or look at see some things from Hubble, there is a natural human impulse to say, I'm looking at more than just plasma on fire in the far reaches of the universe. I'm looking at more than just an amazing creature that I've never seen and this funny looking beast or bird. It is something in which God has a relationship with each one of those creatures and sustains each one, sustains the entire environment. So God is not a God of the day. God is also not the Gnostic God. And the Gnostic God, this thing called Gnosticism, it happened in the first century but Gnosticism is basically, the basic belief of Gnosticism is that it would take the body and the spirit and split them apart and say that there is a body, physical flesh and blood, bone, and there is this thing which is invisible called the spirit, and you are kind of an amalgamation, a combination of these two things. And in this, con- this is Gnosticism, not Christianity. And in this combination of these two things, the body, the flesh, that's the bad stuff. It's the baser stuff. And the spiritual part of who you are, this invisible kind of this soul, that's the good part of you. And it would be a horrible misreading of the Bible to think that that is what Christianity is. The Bible never locates sin in the body. It, when it's talking about flesh, it's not talking about your actual body. The body is the good creation of God. Sin happens not because we are embodied beings. Sin happens because our, our hearts are falling inside of us, not because our bodies are bad. If there's still some thought in you that my body is bad, it's evil, sex is not a good thing, and that's just like a dirty thing, and I've got to be spiritual, which means I just kind of remove myself from all bodily things and live in this kind of sterile spiritual environment, 
That is Gnosticism. And it has existed in one form of another for thousands of years, but it is not Christianity. Gnosticism is this thing where you try and separate your body and your spirit, and you try and become more spiritual, where the scriptures are constantly insisting that if you want to be spiritual, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, do you remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? It is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a spiritual act, it says. Spirituality has to do with your body, not just with this kind of higher transcendental meditation kind of a thing. The thing is, is that I've thought, uh, since coming to New Hope, I've thought about and pondered about this issue uh, quite a bit, actually. And the issue that I'm talking about is men in their 30s, late 30s and 40s in golf. What is that all about? This, uh, uh, this uh, obsession, this, uh, this great compulsion, this great love for the sport. And I think it has something to do with this. I think it is a revolt against the feeling of being fragmented. I feel like my life is in pieces. Like my, who I am as a father, as a husband, as, as, a, as a, my career. And, and I feel like everything's fragmented in my life. And I have no meaningful interaction with creation anymore. I don't look at the world or feel the earth ever. I'm in, in, in an office where I'm in this environment that is completely climate controlled. And I never get out there. I never breathe fresh air. And there is, I think, as you're sitting there in the green, some feeling of harmony and unity and integrity of being. This is the only place that my mind and my heart, and my body all feel this great connection as it all focuses on one point to now then hit this ball and have this connection with creation. That's the only place you get that. It is we were meant, we were created to be bodily involved in the world. And so the great thing about this is that it was never meant to be that, the, that our Christianity and our spirituality only exists in this narrow splice of space of five hours on a Sunday. That's when I'm spiritual. That's when I worship God. And it was never created that the only person that can be uh, holy or spiritual the other six days is a pastor or a missionary. And we know that because of this next part. Let me get to this in Psalm 104 versus fundamentalism. Fundamentalism basically is, uh, let, me, let me go real quick on what fundamentalism is and how someone of course speaks against that. Fundamentalism happened around the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And with, with the onset of modernity, many, many Christians felt that their faith was being attacked. And that it was being attacked not at the peripheral level, but at the fundamental nature of what it means to be a Christian. The inerrancy of scripture meaning that the Bible is the word of God. The atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. These salvation and Bible issues were what was being, they felt, being attacked by the new liberalism, the modernism in the early 1900s. So there was a massive call in America to go back to the fundamentals. Let us return to what is really important. The gospel, Jesus, salvation, the Bible is the word of God. And there was a fighting fortress mentality because they felt under siege. I praise God for fundamentalism 
Because at a time where Christianity, historic biblical Christianity was under attack, these people created a fortress and said, no, these fundamentals are the foundations of our lives. We will not relinquish them. So I praise God for fundamentalism. The only problem is, is that that fortress became eventually, honestly, it became a prison by which Christianity now became equated with only reading your Bible and prayer and issues of salvation and every single other thing which the Bible talks about. Everything. Life, breath, the the kingdom of God and, and all of creation. All these huge other things were completely cut out of the picture and it was just about church, salvation, and the Bible. And so they took a book like Song of Psalms I mean, Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. And it, they took this whole thing and they said, we have no idea how to... And I think at the fundamentalist time, if you've ever read the Song of Solomon, it's about sex. Okay, everybody? <laughs> I think they would have taken that. I think they would have cut it out of most Bibles. We don't know what to do with this. What, the Bible is about just how do you get saved and we don't understand anything else that doesn't fit into that. So they turned the entire song of Solomon that it's really just an allegory, a story about Jesus and the church. As if husband and wife in their communion and union with each other really has nothing to do with worship. As if you could not worship in the way that you treat your husband and the way that you treat your wife. As if your marriage union had nothing to do with passion and glory to Jesus as God who created them, male and female. This was fundamentalism. And Psalm 104, as the rest of the scriptures, speaks radically against this fundamental mentality right from the beginning. Genesis 2 is this beautiful picture of the Garden of Eden. If you slow down and read it carefully, Eden is set upon a mountain facing east. And it is there's gold there. And there are certain kinds of wood there that God has planted. And if you know your Bible in your Old Testament, the first thing that Moses or the writer of Genesis would want you to understand that, the instant resonating echoes, this place that God has created set upon a mountain facing east with gold and wood, the first thing that that sends off in the minds of every good Israelite, that it's a temple. God's creating a temple. There is the Garden of Eden is a temple and this man who was sent there, put in the garden to work it and to keep it, is a priest. Those words, Avad and Shamar, work and keep the garden, are the same exact words used of priestly duties, the Levitical duties of a priest in the temple. It's just that the cathedral of Adam and Eve was all of creation. That was their church. You, you say to Adam and Eve in their pre-fallen state, the most holy people that ever existed in their pre-fallen state. So when do you go to church? When do you have your quiet time? They would just be thinking, what is that? What, what, is, what is a quiet time? What, what is a church? To live and to breathe and to be in existence and to play and to, to hold your wife, to, to, to drink water, to, to go out and run in the field. Everything was worship. It was all church. Everything is God's. Everything is of God. How do you worship Adam? How, how do you worship songs? Were they even around? 
when Adam worked the garden, when he got his hands dirty, when he tilled the land and he kept the garden and he ordered the garden, he felt the most profound presence and experience of the Lord. It was in everything that he did. And so it is an amazing thing. And I think it's hugely instructive for us that when Jesus and God the Father were in heaven and they were ready to send Jesus to planet earth in the incarnation in Bethlehem, and God was looking at God the, God the Father was looking at God the Son and saying, when you grow down, what do you want to be? And I can imagine Jesus in his pre-incarnate state saying, I'd like to be an astronaut. God said, they didn't invent that yet. You know, we're going in, you know, zero, zero AD. That's <laughs> not going to come around for another thousand years or so, yeah? He goes, okay, then I want to be a fireman. Well, they don't really have that either, you know? When you grow down, what do you want to be? If you read the scriptures very thinly and very narrow, you would have thought that the natural, instinctive answer on the reply of the Son of God would be, well, shouldn't I be a priest? Shouldn't I be a... You know, should I be a pastor? And I wonder if I wonder if God said, "Don't you think you should be a pastor?" <laughs> I mean, I could make you a Pharisee or like a, a biblical scholar. You know, they have that. They have the scriptures at zero A.D. Why don't you become a Bible scholar? Do that. And I think Jesus is saying, "No way! No way! Make me something where I can get my hands dirty and feel the stuff you love." The trees, when they clap their hands. You understand what I'm saying? You love the rocks when they cry out. You love the wind when they send your message. You love the light wrapped around you. like that. You love this creation. Because everything is your glory. And I want to touch it. I want to carve it. I want to order it. Make me, can I be a carpenter? Mary was chosen. So was Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter. And it was into this family that Jesus was now going to take the trade of his earthly father. By Jesus taking the form of a carpenter, it's not by chance. It is the hollowing and making sacred of every single thing that each one of you do. You cannot think that the only spiritual, godly, worshipful thing, 24-7, focused on God, activity or calling, is mine. Jeez. That the only people in the church or in the world that are just worshiping, are supposed to worship God in their vocation, in their calling, are pastors and missionaries or Bible scholars made. Jesus came and for 30 years of his life, we must not think for 30 years of his life he did not worship or minister or care about God and then three years, that's when he ministered. For 30 years, he swung a hammer, drove nails into wood, carved, sanded cut down trees carefully well. And this ordering of creation, of taking the splendor of creation and cutting it down and making beautiful objects of it, I promise you, Jesus was one of the best carpenters in the world. He did not say, oh, <laughs> it's not spiritual. When I pray, all right, I'll pour my heart into that. But this is, God, this is my job. I think every time that Jesus carved, as his father is there, his presence watching over his shoulder, the beauty of what he's doing, the carefulness of it, it is the same that you must each do whatever it is that you do. Whether it is actually crunching a database or it's in front of a computer, it's no different. If Jesus could find a way to do that with wood and lathe and hammer and saw, you can learn to do that even with Microsoft products. You can. It's possible. It is. 
infinitely easier with Apple. Let me go to the last thing here. So God is not a deist, neither is he not. Let me say it positively. God is infinitely in his creation and rejoices over it. God sustains his creation. Flesh, you must get rid of this notion that flesh and matter is somehow bad or unspiritual. God is not a fundamentalist, actually. Not in that way. He means for it all to be of glory. Everything. Everything. Going to school, playing with your kids. And let me just say that one quick word before I go to the last one of commercialism. You know, um, you know how much I am on quiet time. I really am. If you could spare those few minutes in the morning, it would really make a huge, vast difference in your day. But this is what this is what I believe. Uh, one time, Elizabeth Elliot came by uh, Gordon Conwell. Uh, Gordon Conwell. <laughs> which was her favorite seminary in, in the world. And uh, and Elizabeth Elliot, uh, people were, they asked, you know, they were, uh, we had just a group of us, and we, somebody asked her the question, how do you keep up your spiritual life, right? It's not that you, you want to ask Billy Graham, right? Like, you know, we all struggle with it. You know, we try to have quiet times. And so they asked Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, how do you keep up your devotional life? How did you keep up your devotional life? She had this gaggle of kids on the mission field. She was a single mom. Her Jamelia had been killed. How would you do? And she, and she looked back and she said, you know, they, somebody asked for a quiet time. She said, she said you know, I got, I got this, all these kids. I'm, I'm, you know, I, you know I, I had this missions come back. I'm a single mom. Tell me when I had time for a quiet time. So I'm, I want to be real careful with that because the thing is, is that I'm sure she did have times of pr- lots of times of prayer and Bible reading. She translated a Bible actually in a language. But what she was saying is that when she did the laundry, when she changed a diaper, when she found food for her kids, when she swept the house, when she, you know, talked, spent time with a friend over, over coffee or whatever, to her it was all quiet time. She had to learn in her busy life and schedule how to translate all of life into prayer and worship. And as you all have graduated from college and you no longer have that flexible time, you don't. And the more children you have, the more demands on your time and the less of your time that you will have to be able to kind of have quiet times. The rest, you cannot use your college spirituality and expect it to sustain your adult life. You must create a new spirituality where you must learn because it doesn't come natural. You've got to learn creatively how to make the connections between your work, your taking care of your kids, your sh- grocery shopping, your, your time with, you, with neighbors. You've got, you got to figure out how all that becomes worship and that that is exactly what God means for you to do. And to never segment Worship is that far four hours I spend on a Sunday. It must go into all of life. And what is necessary for that is a robust and a strong understanding of creation. And so environmental concerns are not just the, uh, the, the property of the liberal left. It isn't. Because the thing is, is that you cannot do this. You can't. You can't say, I want to worship in all of creation and whatever I do and wherever I go, I want to see the glory of God. You cannot say that and in your, in your mind and heart, abuse creation. In other words, if you want to see a park, you, 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 take, you, take, you have some strollers, you and you have taken your family to the park, 
And you want to see this time not just as family time. You want to see this as just infinitely more joyful, infinitely more meaningful, a profound experience with God's presence and my kids and my wife and husband. You cannot do that while if you're just going to litter everywhere. Not, I just, you know, who cares? I mean, if someone's going to pick it up, throw t- trash around, you know. You know it doesn't, doesn't matter. Just, who cares? If you want to see that park as a place of worship, you must take care of it, earthkeeping. So the truth of the matter is, is that environmental concerns, the church actually ought to have been on the vanguard of environmental concerns, more so than anybody else. And we've dropped the ball. Uh, this is not a huge call. This is just a primer. This is just an introduction to the subject. But we, of all people, must be on the forefront of environmental concerns. Because it's not just about whether the, the snows of Kilimanjaro are going to melt and all the, the, the Al Gore stuff, which he you know, demonstrated. And it's not just about leaving something and not depleting all the resources for our kids. It is a sacred trust which God has given to us which begins by understanding the earth is the Lord's and all therein. Psalm 24. doesn't belong to us. This world does not belong to us. We must disabuse ourselves of that notion. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I put all this junk, you know, or, you know, people's stuff all over. I messed up the, the middle aisle and I messed up, you know, this area. I love and have just been greatly so blessed by our crew of people, uh, faithful men, who take care to vacuum and to pick up and to make this place neat and beautiful. And there's two reasons for that, and they work together. One is because it is the Lord's meeting place. And the second is because it doesn't belong to us. It's not our building. It's not, we don't own this building, so we can't just, you know, put everything out just like, you know, willy-nilly, we can't. (laughs) If we explode that out, none of that belongs to us. It doesn't. And do you remember when we first moved in here, and the... A lot of our, our, our sisters were so excited that when they went to the classrooms, because each box of toys and different activity craft stuff had a little picture that said, this is what goes in there, so you always knew what to put in there. God has given us, this is this word of God, this scripture. This is God's picture that says, make it look like this. One day I'm going to come and it's going to be perfect. But work with me. You are my image bearers. I've left you in stewardship of this garden. Don't wreck it. Don't ruin it. Don't destroy it. Don't waste it. Don't deplete it. Take care of it. Keep it. Guard it. What God has told Adam still is passed down to us. Work this garden and keep it. Protect it. Order it. Make it beautiful to the degree that we are responsible. Well, let me close then by just uh, a word, two, uh, one, one essay, paragraph, and then one poem, because you have to kind of get metaphorical, actually, in all these things. Wendell Berry has been somebody that I've been recently come in contact with through his writings. Wendell Berry is a farmer in, of all places, Kentucky. And Wendell Berry has written probably some of the most prophetic words about the environment 
and the Christian responsibility for the environment. So I just, I just commend them to you for your reading. You will not like everything that he says, but that's, it is with all prophets. And so let me just read this paragraph from one of his works. And he makes a distinction between an exploiter and a nurturer. And we need to make many varied applications of these words into our own place of responsibility. The, the, the land that God has given to you to steward, meaning your geographic location, the, your occupation, and the way that it infringes upon the environment. We all have a footprint, and that's not a bad thing. But what we do with it and how we manage it. So this is what distinction he makes between an exploiter and a nurturer. Let me outline as briefly as I can what seems to me the characteristics of these opposite kinds of mind. I conceive a strip miner to be a model exploiter and a model nurturer I take as the old-fashioned idea or ideal of a farmer. The exploiter is a specialist, an expert. The nurturer is not. The standard of the exploiter is efficiency. The standard of the nurturer is care. The exploiter's goal is money, profit. The nurturer's goal is health. His land's health, his own health, his family's health, his community's health, his country's health. Whereas the exploiter asks of a piece of land only how much and how quickly it can be made to produce, the nurturer asks a question that is much more complex and difficult. What is this carrying capacity? How much can be taken from it without diminishing it? What can it produce dependably for an indefinite time? The exploiter wishes to earn as much as possible by as little work as possible. The nurturer expects certainly to have a decent living from his work, but his characteristic wish is to work as well as possible. The competence of the exploiter is an organization. That of the nurturer is in order, a human order. That is, that accommodates itself both to other order and to mystery. The exploiter typically serves an institutional organization. The nurturer serves land, household, community, place. The exploiter thinks in terms of numbers, quantities, hard facts. The nurturer in terms of character, condition, quality, kind. When he describes a nurturer, I hear worshiper. When he describes a nurturer, he, I think, of somebody who is consciously wanting to heal the division in himself of this world and my physical body has nothing to do with God and if I just kind of meditate and just get in my own head and read the Bible a lot, then I can just kind of ascend into the spiritual state hovering above the earth. I want to heal that and be here and have my physical existence, my bodily existence, Live down unto the glory of God in this place, with these people, in this community, together. I hear a God worshiper who wants and means to see all of creation as glory of God. And so that with that, let me just, I'm going to just close with this poem. And I get ready for prayer as we just uh, allow some of these things to gestate. Please read Gerard Manley Hopkins. Please. <laughs> This is a poem called God's Grandeur. And just to tell you, just let you know that this is also coming to you with a gift of grace. I have my own poem right below it, but I'm saving that from you. I'm saving you all from that, you know, and giving you Hopkins instead. I wrote them both. I didn't know which way I was going to go. So 
It's not an easy, that's not a hard choice. He writes, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Jeez, I'm, I'm not going to talk about each single line or else I'll totally break my promise. But you get that? If you could can just learn how to complete the, the circuit, the world is has a current flowing through it. Every activity and object and animal and person is charged with the glory of God. If you can figure out how to complete that circuit. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then not wreck his rod? Mean reckon, understand. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudges and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and through the last lights off the black west went, O morning. At the brown brink eastward springs because the Holy Spirit over the bent world broods with warm breast and all bright wings. The Holy Spirit hovering over creation, bringing it into order and magnificence for the glory of God has not left the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God continues to hover over creation to bring glory unto God in His Son, Jesus, in whose name that we should pray. Would you pray with me? I'm wondering, God, how much of our lives are about seeing, about having the veils that hung and hang heavy over our eyes removed. So with the clear, unfurled brow, we can see the sparkle of creation as you always meant for us to be, as we could see even Christ as you mean for us to be, and that we could see Christ and you, all that you have made and all that you have done that we would see the glory of God and the glory of your Son. Holy Spirit, we know that it is you alone who has the power to enable us to see and to live in the world rightly as a being invested and created for infinite glory. God, would you send your Spirit to us and allow us the difficult mental and physical work to be able to live rightly in creation so that we may in all things give you glory. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.